Amen. Please have a seat. Fourth and fifth graders, you can go to your class. Fourth and fifth graders, you can head off to your class now. Good morning, everybody. All right, since the beginning of the year, 2010, just by way of a refresher, we began the very first Sunday of the year, going back to 2009 and making a list of all the things that God did in and through the Livingstones Church, a huge list. And then the second part of that morning, we talked about some of the things that we think God has in store for us in 2010 and some visional movements in terms of what it is that we think God has called us to in 2010. If you missed it, please go to our podcast and listen to it. I think it will help you in terms of your participation here at the Livingstones Church. And then last week, we began a brand new series called The Cost of Living, and it really was sort of a follow-up from the first week in that we put very factual numbers behind, hey, listen, vision costs money, and this is the best we can determine the cost of doing vision here in 2010. And in that presentation, by the way, if you missed it, go to the podcast and listen to it. But in that presentation, we threw out three numbers for you, $5, $9, and $12. And we talked last week that we set the budget for 2010 based on the average giving of 2009. But in addition, there's still some things we'd like to do in 2010 that will require more money than what happened last year. And so we have three phases. And phase one was, based on how many family units are all in here at the Livingstones Church, if every family unit would give just $5 more per week here at the Livingstones Church, it would allow us to do many things like, uh, one, hire a full-time children's minister to pave our parking lot, to fully fund all of our ministry leaders' submitted budgets, Phase number two, we said it was at $9 if every family unit here at the Livingstones Church gave $9 more per week, and we gave a list of here's all the things we could do in phase two, and then finally $12 was phase three. So if you missed it, go back and, uh, and listen to it. But in my excitement and exuberance to kind of ex- just illustrate, it's five bucks. It's like a foot-long Subway sandwich. That's it. That's all we're asking to sacrifice for Jesus. And then I went on to $9, and then I went on to $12, and in my enthusiasm, I might have mentioned something about the cost of toilet paper and sacrificing for Jesus. After a week of thought, I need you to know Jesus wants you to continue to buy toilet paper and you should use it and not sacrifice for his cause. But if you got, so anyway, I just need to make that real clear based on what I said last week. Now, now I kind of want to shift. I, I, I'm still talking about money, and don't let that get tense in here. We're going to be fine, and it's important for us because money and discipleship are connected. But I want to shift from last week. Last week was really more about the Livingstones Church and giving here and our budget and what that looks like. Just put all that in your mind for a moment. Let's just talk about discipleship and following after Jesus and what that means for us in terms of thinking through money and possessions and the things that we have in our possessions. Now, if I had to describe to you what I think is probably the most dangerous thing to Christianity by way of how we live it out, I would say this. It is living a compartmentalized Christianity, meaning that Christianity, our religious life, as we follow Jesus, is just one compartment in a lot of other compartments in our life. It's just it holds one little area of our life, and we place it alongside the other compartments of our life. And so as you were to think through your life as a whole, you've got your work life, you got your family life, you got your financial life, you got your social network life, your friendship life. You got, I mean, we just kind of, all those we could view as compartments in our life. And it's quite possible to live life in such a way where those compartments are separate and distinct and they never blend in with each other or ever merge. So that you're one kind of a person at the workplace. And when you come home and you're their family, you're an entirely different kind of person at home in your family. Anyone ever experienced that? You're with, you know, you view your husband in a particular way and you get with him in his work environment and all of a sudden it's like, I don't know who that guy is anymore. 
And sometimes that happens in terms of uh, we know mutual people. I meet them in the community. Oh, yeah, so-and-so, they go to Livingstone's church. And because they know the work you, when they think about you as the church you, it's a disconnect. And they give me that eyebrow for, you know what never happened to anybody? Okay. And it's dangerous. It's not that we don't want Jesus to be a part of our life. It's just that we've given Jesus one compartment in our life. And isn't that nice to Jesus? Here, Jesus, come here into my life, and you can have this compartment alongside all the other compartments of my life. What I'm proposing this morning is that has never been Jesus' intention for you. Jesus has never longed for, desires now, once for you still, to be a compartment within the totality of other compartments in your life. With Jesus, it might be possible that Jesus actually wants to be for you the totality of life. That everything else in our life flows out of our relationship with Jesus. It flows out of the fact that we've confessed Jesus as Lord, which means that the work you has to be conformed to Jesus as Lord. And when you're, it's a family you, when you go to your family life, that family life has to be shaped by your relationship with Jesus. That your financial life has to be out of the fact that you confess Jesus as Lord. It might be possible that Jesus never intended to be just one little compartment alongside the other compartments of your life. That he wants to be primary, he wants to be priority. Jesus says he will be everything to you or nothing. He does not play second chair. In fact, what it means to call Jesus Lord is to say, you have primacy in my life and everything else must flow out of my relationship with you. It seems that this would even include money. That we can't say money is a separate deal and doesn't have anything to do with our walk with Jesus, our discipleship. That we have to think about money out of the fact that we are following after Jesus. And in that, Jesus has a lot to say. But I'm telling you, this is good news. It is good news to have our financial life under the lordship of Jesus because when we do, it rescues us from several things. First and foremost, it rescues us from ourselves. Because nothing is worse in my financial life than for me to be the sovereign ruler of everything that is financial. Because here's a little thing for you to know. When it comes to everything that is Sam financial, he's really not that good. He's too selfish. He wants too much. He lacks contentment. If my finances are ordered under nothing more than just Sam and what he wants and desires in life, I'm telling you my finances are going to be totally messed up and I'll be fighting with my wife all the time about money and it's going to create tension and anxiety and stress and every week when you sit down to pay the bills, you know that anxious, sick feeling like you want to throw You're going to feel that all of the time. But when you order your finances under the lordship of Jesus, it's a whole new way to do finances. And some of us know by personal experience that our lives are sort of messed up by way of finances because we've not ordered it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Or for others, it's the opposite. You're not like overspending, you're going crazy. It's you're too tight-fisted. You're so penny-pinching stingy that when you see need, you don't go and respond to it because you're just trying to hang on and hoard as much as you can. You can't spend anything. I know it's just very few by way of personalities, but it exists, and you can get rescued from that as well through Jesus. The second thing is, Jesus, by his lordship, rescues us from the tyranny of money becoming an idol or a priority in our life. And out of all the things that we could compartmentalize in our life, family, work, all those sorts of things, I believe that money, more than anything else, has the power to be an idol in our life. That money has a power behind it that calls to us and it gets us to do ridiculous things because of money. I mean, reality TV is based on getting people to do ridiculous things for the love of money. Now, I'm entertained by it, but in the end, it's not what we want by way of, right? I mean, I'm not giving it up yet, but I'm telling you, we don't want to order our lives like that. 
And money, if it drives us with being the idol in our life or the most important thing in our life, the next thing you know, it can lead us to all sorts of evil, and Jesus doesn't want that for us. And Paul will caution us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Here's what he says. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, they were eager for money. They've actually wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The Bible does not ever view money as neutral. Now listen to me, this is important. The Bible does not view money as some sort of neutral thing, some neutral uh, medium of, ex- of economic exchange. The Bible always portrays money and possessions as having a real power behind it. Like there is actually a powerful force behind money that calls to us. In fact, so much that Jesus will give it a personal name. He uses an Aramaic term to call it mammon. And one day, Jesus in his teaching says this about the power of money. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and and mammon, or money in some of your translations, but the word there is mammon. And he's, per, he's given a personification. What he's saying is, yeah, there is like a real demonic force that can stand behind money and call to you in such a way that it gives, you give your allegiance to it, you give your heart to it, you, get your, you give your life to it, and then it becomes a terrible master. And the two things that are terrible, if, if you are ruling your life or money is ruling your life, you need to know both of those are some of the worst masters of life. Jesus is the good master, and what he's saying is, if you will order your financial life and your money life under me as Lord, it will be a whole new way to live life and a whole new way to see money. And from the perspective of the lordship of Jesus, we can now see money. And listen, I know, you can, I mean, especially your first time here, oh great, going to church and talking about money. We don't ever, I mean really, we hardly ever talk about money here. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know that to be true. But this is so important, you, we, you just can't say discipleship has nothing to say to money. And I get the tension because I watch it too. You ever see a, those uh, religious TV and the TV evangelist up there and they're asking for money and you could put it on the credit card and give 50 bucks and you're going to receive this and this miracle. coming. And it gives me a rash. Does it give anyone else a rash? I mean, I get that. And so if we're sensitive to it, I totally get it. I totally understand. I totally get that it's an easy accusation to throw out at the church. Like, All they're interested in is your money. I'd say here at the Living Stones, you know, that's not true. We're not just interested in your money, but we are interested in figuring out how do we live life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And, of course, that has something to do with money. That is just as absurd to say by way of alternative that money has nothing to do with discipleship, especially given the fact that Jesus talks about money and possessions more than any other topic except for the kingdom of God. Did you know that? If you're just a, all the things that Jesus said and lay it out there, he spends more time talking about our view of money and possessions than anything else except for the kingdom of God. And if we together have as a goal to be different at the end of this year, like in 2010, we want our lives to be different. We want to grow spiritually. We want the Lord to transform us so that at the end of this, in December 2010, I'm a different kind of a Sam than I am in January 2010. Amen? See, I like how it wasn't so energetic, because that would make me feel bad if you all, amen, like a different Sam, so, okay, all right. So if we're interested in being different by the end of this year, then part of that equation will have to be, how do we think about money? And as we begin, I need you to know that the very first thing that Jesus would teach us, like if I, money 101 by Jesus, I think the very first thing he would teach us, and if we get this down, if we truly let this go to our heart, if we truly let this soak in into our mind, I'm telling you, I think it'll be radical, it'll be revolutionary, it'll be freeing, it'll be liberating, it'll be a powerful motivation for you to use and see money differently, and this is it. Let me give you by way of illustration. 
pretend for a moment that you have an owner of something sort of like a McDonald's. Let's see, this guy right here owns a McDonald's. Let's pretend for a moment that as the owner of McDonald's, he has all the rights and privileges, privileges that come with being an owner, right? He put up all the capital to invest in this new venture. He owns this property. He owns this business. Or he's gone into debt to do it, but he's hoping to pay it off. But it is his. It is his store. It's his restaurant, which means as the owner, he can eat as many French fries as he wants, right? Because he's the owner. And as the owner, he is entitled to special rights. He is the origination of this, the dreamer of it, the implementer of it. And there's just special things that get to go in with being the owner of something. I'll never forget going uh, in college with my wife, Kelly, and her best friend, Arlene. Uh, Arlene's dad owned drug emporiums. I don't know if you ever heard of them. They're down south more. But they're, like they're kind of like a Walgreens here. And uh, we went in one day, and I knew that Arlene's dad owned it. So I wondered how that worked in terms of just, you know, could she get whatever she wanted? I mean, how did that work? So she put things in the cart, and I go, I bet you probably get a pretty good discount, right? Just right, because your dad owns it. And they kind of giggled, but they didn't say anything. And she got a whole cart full of stuff. And in the end, all we did was go to a back room, and somebody tallied up how much it was for just the accounting of it. But she got all of it for free. She could go to Drug Emporium at any time she wanted to get whatever she wanted. See, I would have totally taken advantage of this, and she was really good about it. But, I mean, she could get anything she wanted, and it was totally free. And you know why? Because her dad owned it. See, when you're the owner, you get special rights and privileges, and as the owner, there's special care of investment that goes into what is yours. Now, on the other hand, you've got a manager, and a manager is different than an owner, right? This guy here manages the McDonald's. He doesn't own the McDonald's. He manages the McDonald's. And if he helps himself to an unlimited supply of French fries, eventually, who's he going to have to give an account to? The owner. See, he's the manager. He's been hired by the owner for an entirely different thing. He's been hired to serve, to oversee the activities of the McDonald's, to be concerned with its direction and affairs so that it operates like a McDonald's, right? So if anybody in the organization says, I think we should start serving tacos, the manager gets to say, no, we're a McDonald's and this is what we do. It's continue to be quarter pounders and Big Macs. He does those. He's in charge of the provisions and distribution. He's entrusted with the daily management of the company's purpose and intention, supervises, manages, stewards, administers, but the manager is not the owner. It's a different risk level. It's a different investment. The manager works for and on behalf of the owner. Now, here's what I think Jesus would have us know about money, the very first thing. You are not the owner of the things that are in your possession. Now, hang with me for a moment. Don't, don't dis dismiss me yet, but your home, your car, your food, your bank account, your checkbook, here's the first principle that Jesus would have us to know in following after him. It is this. We're not the rightful owner. God is the rightful owner. You are the manager. See, it's one of roles. God is the owner. We are the managers. And because of that, it changes everything. It's a mindset shift for us. And I know it's radical. And we'll, we'll talk about this in just a moment. It's a mindset shift for us to believe that really our money, our possessions, our treasure, at least from Jesus' perspective, doesn't rightfully belong to us. It, it rightfully belongs to God. He's the owner. And you could just go back into Scripture. As you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's very clear in the end, God made and created everything. It belongs to Him. Everything we have belongs to Him. In a conversation God has with Job, he'll say this in Job 41.11, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Or Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And then when you go on to the teachings of Jesus, he's always talking about parables. And the point of the parables often are, at least the ones dealing with money and possessions are, this idea that 
God is the owner. We are just the servants, the managers, the stewards. And so we referenced this last week, but one parable is the parable of the talents where the owner gives to his servants five talents, two talents, and one talent. And in the end, the owner comes back and wants to know, how did you manage this? How did you, what did you do with my things that I entrusted to your care? Well, how did, and the, one, the guy that got the one talent just buried it and it upset the owner. Or you've got another parable in Matthew 21. It's about the tenants where it paints a pic- Jesus is painting a picture of God is the owner and this is his property, but he has entrusted the care of this property to servants and someday the owner comes back to find out what is the yield on my property. He does it again with the workers in the vineyard. The same concept in Matthew chapter 20. God is the owner and he just entrusts what is rightfully his to others to manage and to steward. And perhaps one of the greatest chapters, Luke chapter 16. I'm telling you, you should read this when you go home. It's about a manager who was shrewd and in the end kind of cheated but was kind of praised for it. It's a, it's a crazy chapter. But the end of it, especially in Luke 16 verse 12, in the end the question is asked, who is going to trust you with your own property if you can't be a good faithful steward of somebody else's? And it's Jesus' point of it all belongs to God. But I know this rubs us weird. And Greg even hinted this in the communion comments where you work all those hours in the week and you finally get the paycheck and you're looking at the mountain it's not near what you think that you deserve. But at the end you think to yourself, but at least I earned this. I worked hard for this. This is my, my paycheck. And then when you sign the check to the mortgage company, it's hard not to think to yourself, this has come out of my bank account, this is my house, I can do whatever I want with it, or this is my car, or this is what it, fill in the blank. And it rubs against this whole American spirit we have of individuality, of independence, of capitalism, which states if you work hard, you can earn what you get, and it's yours. Private ownership, it's mine. This was best illustrated in 1965. A movie came out with Jimmy Stewart, Shenandoah. And in the movie, there's a scene where they all sit down for dinner. So you see the family, they're all gathered around the table. And Jimmy Stewart's character, Charlie Anderson, offers up a prayer for the meal. And this is his prayer in the movie. He says, Lord, we cleared this land. We planted it. We sowed it. We harvested it. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel. But we thank you, Lord, just the same for the food we're about to eat. Amen. It's hard not to feel that way, isn't it? And see, in the end, it rubs us, but you need to know from Jesus' perspective, the idea that what is in your possession is rightfully yours and you're the true owner is a lie. That in Jesus' perspective, everything that is in your possession rightfully belongs to God and he is the owner and he is just entrusting it to your care, to manage, and to steward. Which means everything that I, and really, this goes beyond even money, even things like this. I have three children in my home And God has entrusted them to my care for 18 years to steward them. They rightfully belong to God. And there are days when I'm ready to send them back to Him. But in the end, see, I knew somebody, somebody understand that. Somebody understands that. But in the end, what that means is ultimate responsibility for my kids rests on God. Because He's the only one that really can see them at all times. I'm not there all, I mean, you know what I'm saying? They belong to God. Now, he's entrusted them to me to manage, so I want to be faithful with my children. I want to be the best kind of father I can be and be faithful in that, but ultimately, they belong to him. What that means is my home on Huffman Drive doesn't rightfully belong to me. It belongs to God. And because it belongs to God, and he is the rightful owner, and I'm simply the manager, the steward that's been entrusted with this home, I now have to think in terms of who, how does the owner want me to use this home? And all of a sudden, I can't think selfishly. It can't be all about Sam, because it's all about Sam. I mean... Well, we'll paint a different picture later. But I mean, 
all of a sudden, it asks me to think about issues of hospitality and caring for other people. What does it mean to enter into relationships? Because God really owns this. And I'm asking for a better one, but at the moment, the thing that God has entrusted to me by way of vehicle is a 1996 Toyota Camry with 230,000 miles on it. But it still belongs to God, which means because he's the rightful owner, I'm just the steward, the manager of that Camry, and it means I have to think through how would he have me use this vehicle. And you can go through my teacher's credit union account, all those things. It is a huge radical shift to move from it's mine, mine, mine to it rightfully belongs to God. And I'm simply to manage it and to steward it faithfully. I know we like to think we're self-made, but we are totally a product of God's providential care. Now, did you know just by virtue of being born here in America or living here in America, you are in the top 5% of the world's wealthiest people? I mean, even if you're the poorest one in the room, and congratulations if you won that contest, but I mean, even if you are the, the poorest one here in this room, by virtue that you live here in America, you are still, when compared to the world, in the top 5% of the wealthiest people to live on the face of the earth. Isn't that amazing? And how did that happen? God's providence. Why was I born here and not somewhere else? I have no idea. Why was I, right? And so there's a project where a photographer went out and started taking pictures of, go, go back for, for a moment here, Paul, go back to, uh, this is all the earthly possessions of a family who lives in China. Just, that's what they did. They just, let's see what a typical family lives like in China, have all your possessions, bring them out, and that's what it looks like. You could have been born in China, and if that's the case, this would be the sum total of your possessions, typically. Or going to the next one, this is a family in India. This is the total amount of possessions that this family has who lives in India. Do you see that? Just compare that in your mind with what you have. Even if you think of yourself as poor, think about what you have compared to this family in India. Or the next one is Japan, typical family from Japan. Or what about Mali here, Africa? This is what it would look like. The sum total of this family's possessions right there on the top of that roof. And compare that with yourself. And then finally in America here. Kind of a dated photo, clearly from the South, given the uh, cowboy hat, I'm going to guess. But uh, in the end, why do you have what you have, and why do you live here? The answer is God's providential care. And why we weren't, I mean, even in this week, have we all been impacted by the things we've seen in Haiti? I mean, how come we weren't born in Haiti? I have no idea. God's providential care. But for whatever reason, God has given to us the ability to be blessed in a way that most of the world has not been blessed so that we can be a blessing to others. That's it. God has entrusted us for whatever reason with his things that we might use them for his purposes and for his kingdom and with his intention. We were born to be a blessing to others. And we can do this now because we now know it's not ours. It really belongs to him. And now he wants us to manage it, steward it with his purposes, his aim, and his intentions in mind. But really what's so amazing is how much of God's money he allows us to spend on ourselves. I mean, really, when you think about it, it all belongs to God. If you think about how much he lets us spend on ourselves, it's incredible. He lets me get to set my own salary. I just love that about God. As I manage his things, I get to set my own salary. And he allows me to draw needed funds from his wealth that I can pay off my living expenses. And so one of the central spiritual decisions we each have in life is to ask this question, what is a reasonable amount to live on? And then, whatever is left, how much do we have to invest in the kingdom of God and the purposes of Jesus Christ? Now, some, and I've done this too, set their salaries at 110% of what God is actually giving us, right? That's when we get out the credit cards, we're, start, I mean, we're living at 110%. But here's the deal. In all the parables that Jesus gives us, do you know what happens in the end? 
How, you know how all those, the, the vineyard, the tenants, uh, the talents, you know how the parable ends? The owner shows up and wants to see the books. That's how they always end. All right, the owner's away. The owner finally decides to come back home, and when he shows up, he wants to see the books. He wants to see what have you done with his things. The end of all of Jesus' parables are about the true owner wanting to see the ledger and the accounts recorded. There is an accounting. There is a reckoning. He wants to know, what did you do with my money? Could you imagine an owner that didn't ask that question? But just imagine, you owned a McDonald's, but you never, ever went to the store, never went to the restaurant, never talked to the manager, has no idea what profit margins are. I mean, he just totally didn't care. I mean, it would be ridiculous. And God himself says that he comes as the owner wanting to know an account and wants to know what is it we've done with his money. And so the question becomes, we could talk about money in some ethereal, abstract way, and oh, it all belongs to God, but it really gets really practical and it gets really down to earth. This is the challenge I'd have for you this week. Go home and get out your personal budget. Really, I mean, just as you sit down and, I guess if you don't have a budget, maybe do that first. <laughs> and then number two, just take a look at all the line items. Just everything that you have coming in and all the things that you have going out, just take a look at all those different line items and ask yourself, where is the line item that is specifically dedicated to the kingdom of God and the purposes of Jesus? See, I mean, it's real practical, right? That's not difficult. Go through, your, go through your budget, and in the end, ask yourself, what is the percentage of all the things that God has entrusted to me that I use to invest in his purposes and his kingdom? And in the end, for some, that line item might be a, a goose egg, to which I would just say, not by way of terror or warning, but we serve a God who owns it, who someday will ask for an accounting. And what we each want to hear from our God is this, well done, good and faithful servant. At the end of Jesus' stories to those servants who were, who were faithful in terms of management and stewardship, God comes and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that's what we want. We want with whatever it is that we have to recognize it really belongs to God, and because of that, we're just to manage it and use it according to his purposes and for his kingdom. And it takes away from us the excuses of, well, yeah, but I can't now because I got this, and well, this is coming in, and I got these bills, and I'm already in debt in this way. Yeah, but that, that, it's all God's, and he still needs an accounting of what have you done with his money for his purposes and for his sake, which is ultimately then for us to transfer the deed of everything that is under possession to him. It's a radical shift, but I think if you're going to follow after Jesus and not compartmentalize your financial life, this is the bottom line. We will have to, in our hearts and in our minds, transfer the deed of all that we have to him. And then when we grasp that we are just the steward and not the owner, it will change everything by way of perspective. It's interesting to me, uh, like even, and I'm not talking about just, like, I'm talking in general. Like when you see that stuff about Haiti and it draws on your heartstrings to be generous, that's a demonstration of investing yourself in the kingdom of God. I mean, I'm not talking about just here at the Livingstone Church. I mean, in general, being a generous person with the things of God that he's entrusted to you. But it's interesting to me, oftentimes we have this thought in our mind, it's like, you, you, sit back, you ask the question, well, what should I give, back, what should I give to God out of the goodness of my heart? Uh, for, what, what should I give to God? When the, other, the opposite is, and the, the more faithful one is, no, it all belongs to God. It's not, what do I give back to God? It's all God's. The real issue is, how much will I spend on myself? And in it, when we begin to recognize we've deeded it all back to God, and here's what I'd offer to you. Randy Alcorn wrote a book on uh, discipleship and money, and he wrote out what he called a deed to God. And this is what he said. Listen to this, and I would encourage you to apply this into your life. Randy Alcorn says this, I hereby grant and concede to the Lord my God ownership of myself and all my money and possessions and everything else I've ever imagined that belonged to me, including my family and loved ones. And instead of seeing myself as the ultimate recipient, 
I will see myself as God's delivery person, enjoying what he intends me to keep and distributing what he intends to go elsewhere. From this point forward, I will think of these things as his and do with as he wishes. I will do my utmost to ask him and to prayerfully consider how he wishes me to invest his assets to further his kingdom. In doing so, I realize I will surrender certain temporary earthly treasures, but gain in exchange eternal treasures as well as increased perspective and decreased anxiety. It is to say, God, this is all yours. Would you give us wisdom as we know how to faithfully manage it and steward it for your glory's sake? Let's pray to that end. Let's pray. Father, we come and say thank you for being so overly generous to us. And there are things that we can't answer by way of what we have. And I know there's times when we kind of complain. There's times when we wish we had more. There's times when we need more. But when we compare ourselves to the rest of the world and even to things that we've seen on the news this week, we step back for a moment just to say, oh, no, you have blessed us in a major way. Lord, we also recognize that in those blessings, they rightfully belong to you. And you're asking us to use them in a way that gives you glory. And so would you give us wisdom? Thank you that you let, that you let us spend so much of it even on, our, on ourselves. But at the same time, we want to be faithful, and so we want to spend also according to your desire for your kingdom and for your son, Jesus. So give us wisdom in that. Give us opportunity in that. And may we be faithful. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.